1: Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Faris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com
1: Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's playlist, we're featuring the latest interview from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest minds and experts. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's forum for live journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's editor-in-chief. I'm your host for the next 30 minutes. We're focusing today on Afghanistan, one year on since the Taliban violently took over Kabul. What is life in the country like now? What does it mean for the region and for the world? I'll be joined by two experts who followed Afghanistan closely for decades. Now, FP Live discussions are, of course, where we bring experts and insiders to discuss world affairs. We love to take your questions as well, so please click on the Q&A button on Zoom and write in. FP subscribers can, of course, head to our website and look at a growing archive of these conversations with experts and practitioners, such as Fiona Hill, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and many, many others. We also recently had on Dr. Roya Rahmani, the former Afghan ambassador to the United States. Now, more than a year ago, US President Joe Biden told the world he would be the last American president to preside over the country's longest war, ending two decades of US military presence in Afghanistan. The pullout of US troops from the country coincided with a violent takeover by the Taliban, who had been gaining control of territories in the country months before American troops began to leave. As they declared victory over Kabul, former Afghan President Ashraf Ghani was forced to flee. His government collapsed, leaving the country with an enormous power vacuum and looming fear of how the Taliban would govern. For his part, President Biden called the pullout of U.S. troops from Afghanistan a new era of the use of American power, one in which the U.S. would no longer use military operations to, quote unquote, remake other countries. He said that the world is changing and that American leadership must change with it, has it? To discuss all of this and more, let me bring in my guests today, two FP contributors who regularly focus on Afghanistan. Lynn O'Donnell is an FP columnist and an Australian journalist and author. She was the Afghanistan bureau chief for Agence France-Presse and the Associated Press, between 2009 and 2017, as some of you may know, while reporting from the country late last month, Lin was detained by the Taliban before being released and then leaving the country. Also joining us, Michael Kugelman. He's the writer of Foreign Policy's weekly South Asia Brief, a terrific newsletter that I encourage all of you to sign up for. It goes out on Thursdays, so just in about five hours from now. In addition to his great work for us, he is the Asia Program Deputy Director and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center in Washington. Lynn and Michael, thanks so much for being here today.
0: Hello. Hi.
1: Great to have you both. Thanks also to our audience from around the world. Welcome to an FP live on the future of Afghanistan. Lynn, I have to start with you. You were detained by the Taliban last month. You've written about it for FP, of course, and I urge our listeners and watchers to take a look at it on our website. You've done countless media interviews on it as well. Let me ask you this, what did that experience of being detained by the Taliban reveal to you about that group?
0: Hi Ravi and thanks for having me. I think that it's a really good question because it takes it beyond me and my experience. And, and into the realm of what it's really like in Afghanistan under the Taliban, and that was the reason that I went. It had been a year, almost a year, since um, I left Afghanistan on the 15th of August as the Taliban were entering the city, and there's been so much reporting and um, so much um, confusion, really, about what the situation there is really like, and so I wanted to go and see for myself And I really did see for myself, I did all the right things. I had a a valid media visa. I registered at the airport as I arrived and then the following day I went to the foreign ministry, as I'm expected to do as a visiting foreign correspondent, and presented myself to the spokesman for the foreign ministry who calls himself Abdul Kaha Balki, that's not his real name, and I was berated and verbally abused and had my life threatened over the course of an hour. It was really quite shocking and certainly not diplomatic. And in the course of that, he told me that I would be um, asked by the intelligence agency, the GDI, the General Directorate of Intelligence, to leave the country, that um, I wasn't recognised as a real journalist, that I made up all my stories, that my sources didn't exist. He also reminded me of an attack that the Taliban had made on a bus of Uh, employees of a local television station in 2016 after one of their reporters had um, made an erroneous report about the Taliban's activities in Kunduz during a siege of that city um, uh, earlier that year. And um, the bus bus attack killed a lot of people. Mm. But he said, this is what we do with people who make false reports and we're proud of that. And I said, "You, you killed a lot of innocent people that day he said, and we're proud of that. I said, one of the people that you killed was a friend of mine. He said, and we're proud of that. He was making a direct threat against my life. And um, so that was the first um, layer of, of, of real brutality, I think, and threat with impunity that I came across. Um, the following day, I was um, detained by the GDI, um, two agents, came with armed uh, gunmen to my uh, guest house and they took me to their headquarters and they held me for for four or five hours. Um, They shouted at me, berated me. The same thing, you're not a journalist, you make up your stories, who are these people? The stories they took particular exception to, which um, we published in Foreign Policy, were um, both the themes of both of the stories were sex. One was about forced marriages And the other was about the way um, the Taliban are treating LGBTQ people. Um, The first one uh, we published on the 23rd of July, 2021, and it, reports of this happening are still, even today, I'm seeing reports in Afghan media of forced marriages in various places of the country. And I was told that there are no gays in Afghanistan at the same time as being asked, why do you call us extremists? It was all a very um, dark and um, darkly satirical almost experience. But really what I learned from that was, aside from, you know, a, 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 a kind of comical level of of incompetence was the impunity with which Taliban officials believe that they can um, operate. Um, I was threatened and held against all conventions of human rights and um, international law. Um, People who I came in contact with were later detained and interrogated. My driver was held incommunicado for three days he was beaten up deprived of sleep his phone and his car were kept they were given back to him after about a week um but i and the even the manager of the guest house where i stayed was threatened he was told we can come and shut you down whenever we want so there is this undercurrent of violence and we've been hearing for the past year some terrible stories about arbitrary detentions and beatings and and uh, rapes and uh, even killings. A lot of people are still in, in prison um, in, and in hiding. And a lot of people have fled over borders, land borders that they can cross. Um, so my impression, just to get to the point, um, is that, um, yeah, it, it is, um, it's a regime that is uncomfortable with anything but violence. And the only way of pressing its authority is through the threat or the use of violence.
1: Um, You know, I encourage all of our viewers and listeners to um, read uh, Lynn's report um, uh, as as she left the country. Uh, Thanks for that, Lynn. Michael, let me bring you in now and and just to sort of step back and look at the bigger picture of of where Afghanistan is today. As an analyst, you've followed this closely for so long. I'm going to ask you a similar question, but with a a different prompt, really. I mean, so the U.S. drone strike that killed um, al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri earlier this month, What did that strike reveal about the Taliban's ability uh, to govern the country?
2: Well, uh, thanks Ravi. It's great to be here with you and and Lynn. Um, Certainly that strike exploded the myth propagated by the Taliban um, that the Taliban is denying space to terrorist groups. And it was an apparent, actually a clear violation of the Doha agreement, which of course was the agreement signed between the Trump administration and the Taliban In 2020, uh, which says that the Taliban will not uh, let Afghan soil be used by those that threaten the security of the US. And for many, the Doha deal is viewed as a source of international legitimacy for the Taliban. So it's a big blow in that regard. Um, Clearly, Zawahiri could not have been living where he was for as long as he did without someone high up in the Taliban knowing. And indeed, uh, the Taliban had been known to control that neighborhood where he was very tightly. Um, and there have been multiple reports, as, as, as you know, indicating that a close aide of Siraj Haqqani owned the house where Zawahiri was. And of course, Siraj Haqqani is a top leader in the Haqqani network, and he happens to be the interior minister uh, of the of the Taliban regime. So I think that this, it will certainly um, make it harder for the Taliban to get the, the recognition, the international recognition that many, but not all uh, of their leaders want in the sense that, you know, for many if the Taliban has not been recognized by a single country at this point. Certainly one reason for that is concerns about human rights and women's rights and so on. But I'd argue that many countries and especially countries in the region, for them, the biggest con- concern is about terrorism risks, mm. concerns that the Taliban is not doing enough to curb terrorism on its soil. Uh, clearly, when uh, the head of Al-Qaeda is discovered to be living right in the middle of, uh, of Kabul, that's not going to, it's going to raise those concerns even
1: more, uh, for sure. And, and Michael, just to jump in there, um, given what you say, I mean, how worried should the West be? How worried should the region be um, about terrorism that might emerge from from Afghanistan?
2: Well, I think it depends on how we define terrorism at this moment in time. If we're talking about uh, local terrorism within Afghanistan, terrorism within the country now, I mean, we we should clearly be very worried because set aside the issue of Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda is not what what it used to be, but if you look at the group Islamic State Khorasan, uh, this is a group that only emerged in recent years, but it's active, it's potent, and it's been quite resilient, and it's a rival of the Taliban, and it wants to make the Taliban look bad, and shatter this Taliban narrative that um, it's been, has been in place ever at, since it took over, and that is that the Taliban has restored peace and stability. Uh, Islamic State Khorasan has been uh, staging many attacks over the last year, including attacks that have targeted the Taliban directly. Uh, this is a group that was able to um, benefit for some prison breaks that happened uh, during those chaotic uh, last days of the U.S. presence in the country. Uh, it's a group that's benefited from the fact that it's been able to seize a lot of weaponry left behind by NATO forces, and it's no longer getting hit by the airstrikes that you had from the NATO forces. So in that sense, we really do need to be worried about terrorism in the country. But in terms of transnational terrorism, at this point in time, I don't think al-Qaeda or Islamic State, the two major global terror groups in Afghanistan, uh, they don't have the capacity at this time to project An immediate threat far beyond Afghanistan, certainly to the U.S. But, you know, one thing to watch over the next year is are there are there indications of foreign fighters, foreign uh, militant fighters that have previously fought in in the the Middle East or elsewhere? Those that are from Europe or the U.S., those that would be able to strengthen the capacities of Al Qaeda and Islamic State to project that broader type of threat far beyond Afghanistan. So it's important to distinguish between two Mm
1: -hmm. different types of terrorist threats. Indeed. And I obviously urge all of our viewers to to read some of Michael's writing on this. Also, lots more on our website. Dan Byman, uh, the analyst, had a very good take on on sort of the implications for terrorism uh, in the region. urge you to take a look at that. Um, I want to encourage our viewers to send in questions. Of course, I see a few coming in. Also happy to read out comments if you have them, I believe. Um, Also in our audience today is uh, Dr. Anwar Ahadi, the former finance minister of Afghanistan, uh, happy to take a question or a comment from you, sir, uh, as we weave through uh, the region and issues uh, related to Afghanistan. But speaking of, I'd I'd like to detour just a little bit um, and uh, jump to Pakistan for a second, because Uh, Osama bin Laden, of course, was assassinated um, in a US military operation in that country uh, many years ago. Lynn, you were just there. Um, How is Islamabad viewing Taliban rule and dealing with it?
0: Well, the impression that um, I got from people that I was talking to and meeting with in Islamabad was very much a feeling that Pakistan has lost control of the Afghan Taliban. And I think one of the ironies of the post-August 15 um, era is that um, whereas the Pakistani establishment um, helped and aided and, and um, harboured the leadership of the Afghan Taliban in various places in Pakistan throughout their war, the Afghan Taliban are now harbouring the leadership of the Pakistani Taliban and um, Mm -hmm. are purporting, Siraj Haqqani was at the centre of this, to be brokers of peace between the two sides. Um, I think that the the Pakistanis have a lot of problems to deal with and homegrown insurgency is just part of a mix of, you know, political and economic breakdown. the, the, the feeling that I get from Kabul is that um, Pakistan and the Pakistani ambassador still has uh, very much a, an almost a gubernatorial type of um, um, influence over certain parts of the, of the Taliban. Um, for instance, um, over the release uh, last week of um, another friend of mine, Anas Malik, who was uh, kidnapped by and held by the Taliban um, for a day or so, Um, his release was secured by intervention from Pakistan's ambassador. So there is um, a lips and teeth as long as it's convenient to both sides' Mm -hmm. relationship. But um, I think that the the Afghan Taliban have been chafing very much against the overarching influence and expectations of the Pakistani military and political establishment.
1: Right. Right. Michael, I want you to weigh in here as well. I know you watch Pakistan very closely.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I largely agree with uh, with Lynn. I mean, my sense is that perhaps Pakistan has been, had a bit of a buyer's remorse in the sense that um, the fact that the Taliban is now in control in Kabul, initially, I think that may have been welcomed by many within the state because for many years, Pakistan's main interest in Afghanistan is for there to be a government in Kabul friendly to to Pakistan. And of course, the Taliban has had a long relationship with Pakistan. But we've seen in over the last year that, A number of tensions have cropped into the relationship between Pakistan uh, and the Taliban. One of them is over the issue of the border. Um, The Taliban has never accepted the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, and that's in line with just about every government in Afghanistan that's been in power since Pakistan became uh, independent. All Afghan governments in recent years have not accepted that border, and the Taliban hasn't either. And Pakistani soldiers had been trying to um, put up uh, fencing along the border, and they got into a bit of a spat uh, tussle with, with Afghan fighters. The other issue is the Pakistani Taliban, indeed. Um, this is a threat to Pakistan. It's ramped up its attacks in Pakistan in recent uh, months. It's based in Afghanistan, and Pakistan might have hoped that the Taliban would try to curb that threat, but it has not. Uh, and Indeed, it has. the Taliban has mediated talks between the Pakistani Taliban and the Pakistani state, they haven't gone very well. They've reached an impasse. And so as a result, Pakistan does have a have, have, have it does have a problem on its hands now the relationship certainly between the Pakistan the Pakistani state and the, the Taliban in Afghanistan is more complex than many suggest there've always been some disagreements uh, some within the Taliban have mistrusted Pakistan for a number of reasons but I think that's sort of been brought out a bit more now that the Talib, now that the Taliban is in power but for sure despite all that, I think the Taliban does look to Pakistan as as a country that it hopes can can assist, whether in in terms of financial assistance or or assistance beyond that. But again, no country, including Pakistan, has been willing to recognize the Taliban regime Mm -hmm. yet, which is significant.
1: You know, Michael, just to spend another beat on the region before we go back to Afghanistan, um, you mentioned the the phrase bias remorse. Um, India, on the other hand, which, you know, definitely didn't buy into this, didn't want this situation at all. Um, has just reopened its embassy in Kabul. I'm not saying that they have the opposite of bias remorse. They'd obviously uh, prefer democracy in the region, um, but they are now engaging with some diplomatic discussions with the Taliban. Indeed. I mean, for me, this is one of the most striking
2: takeaways, uh, the geopolitics uh, that have come over the last year, the regional geopolitics. There were many observers that thought that uh, once the U.S. left, that um, uh, countries like China and uh, and Russia and Pakistan would, would swoop in and be willing to work with the Taliban, and that would disadvantage India, which had been very close to the non-Taliban governments, but is clearly, uh, does not have a friendship with the Taliban, and Taliban uh, fighters have attacked Indian interests and Indian nationals in Afghanistan in the past. But instead, Pakistan has had these problems with the Taliban, and India has indeed moved in, partially reopened its embassy. And I think it's it's in some ways a very shrewd decision in the sense that New Delhi likely believes that it's easier to pursue its own interests in Afghanistan with more of a presence on the ground. And India does have a long history of providing assistance, development assistance to the country. It wants to uh, keep exploring how to pursue its own interests regarding its concerns about terrorist groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba and Jaish-e-Mohammed, which do have a presence in Afghanistan and threaten uh, India. Uh, I think India certainly wants to be able to try to counter potential Pakistani and Chinese moves in Afghanistan. And finally, you know, India, I think, wants to try to facilitate access to Central Asia, a critical region for India, looking to markets and energy resources there. And I think the idea is it's easier to do
1: that with more of a presence on the ground in Afghanistan, even in Afghanistan, led by the Taliban. Indeed. You know, and there's also the role of China, but uh, you know, we I might try and come back to that at the end if we have time. I want to bring in some uh, viewer questions just to bring us back to uh, Afghanistan Central. Um, uh, Marissa Q, uh, Lynn, this one's for you. Uh, Marissa read your pieces, and she says that in one of them you say you don't believe the Taliban regime is sustainable. Um, The question then to you um, quickly is. What what scenarios are you envisioning? Uh, what scenarios are experts envisioning for the future of Afghanistan in the next few years?
0: Um, I think that what we saw with the killing of um, Zayman al-Zawahiri on the 31st of July was the opening up of fissures within the Taliban that we've been hearing about and which have been hinted about over the past year. Um, There has been a divide between what have been called the pragmatists um, led by um, Sirajuddin Haqqani, uh, people who like him recognise what steps would be necessary to take in order to curry favour, if you like, with the the Western um, community, uh, such as easing up on bans and restrictions on Uh, women's lives and girls schooling and um, the uh, Kandahar uh, faction which is based around the Supreme Labor leader Haibatullah Khunzada who is really ruling with dogma. A couple of weeks ago he declared that all of the laws that were passed under the Republic uh, government would be uh, abolished in favour of Sharia. Um, The uh, ban uh, the the coming down on the 23rd of, of March Against girls uh, returning to high school came directly from him. So this divide is very much widening, and I think also today we've seen the um, the killing of um, another Hakani. Um, um, Rahimullah, a a very uh, prominent uh, cleric who has been in favour of, um, outspokenly in favour of girls' schooling um, and also, you know, associated with the pragmatists, if you like, has been killed in a suicide bombing in his madrasa in Kabul. And it could be that these these are the first signs that we're seeing of um, a a real um, struggle Mm
1: -hmm. within
0: the ranks of the Taliban for supremacy.
1: Right. Let me bring in Michael on this very question, because, you know, it it occurs to me that a few months ago, I believe it was March when uh, the Taliban sort of reversed its decision uh, to allow girls to go to school. Um, In a sense, it showcased uh, that sort of last minute reversal showcased high level disagreements within the group, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was a critical moment, I think, um, in
2: terms of how we look at the at the Taliban and how it's uh, governed over its year in power. Uh, and indeed, it it exposed the, the very clear divisions within the group, which, you know, which, as I think Lynn had noted, uh, really there's the, this dividing line or divisions between those that actually are in Kabul running the country or trying to run the country and the uh, supreme leadership, which is essentially a group of, of religious leaders based in Kandahar. And Essentially, uh, you know, Habibullah, the the supreme leader of uh, of the Taliban, decided that he didn't want this to happen, uh, and and given that he didn't want it to happen, no one was going to push back against that. So it's striking that even many Taliban leaders that one would never want to describe as as moderates, such as Shiraj Haqqani, they wanted that that uh, older girls to be allowed to go back to school in March, but. I think it's it's clear of how the issue of consensus works within the Taliban. And if people don't, if everyone doesn't agree across the board, then decisions, a particular decision is not going to happen. And especially if you don't get the buy-in from that uh, that leadership shura based in, uh, in Kandahar. So that's quite striking. And it's also notable that so much of this decision-making process within the Taliban, it's rather opaque. It's oftentimes hard to know what's really going on. But in that case, it exploded into the open. And also there was a lot of mixed messages, of public statements coming from different leaders. Some seem to be suggesting that uh, the school should open, others not. So, you know, for a group that prides itself on being disciplined and, and coherent and, 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 and united, this that incident showed how that really is not the case. And I think if you wanna to look to the next year, thinking about this issue of sustainability, of the Taliban regime, it's actually quite remarkable that it's gotten to over the last year as it has. I mean, it controls just as much territory now as it did when it took over, and that's nearly 100% of the country. But looking to the next year, all of the stress with for, that the Taliban are facing because of their inability to uh, to ease these major crises the country faces, still trying to um, convert, or pardon me, uh, con- go to towards uh, mm-hmm. Governance, as opposed to being an insurgency, adjust to that. The terrorism threat from Islamic State Khorasan is under a lot of stress, and that could exacerbate the divisions within the group, which could affect its
1: ability to govern. We'll see how that plays out over this next year. It is, of course, much easier to be an insurgent group um, and sort of have a wide tent than it is to be a government uh, and have a wide tent and to be incl- to include various factions without. Divisions coming out into the open. I want to introduce one quick comment. It's not a question from Jonathan Greenberg, just on the themes we've been discussing. He says, um, "My adult life has been bookended by Afghanistan as a former Peace Corps volunteer in Helmand from 1968 to '70, uh, and for the past 12 years as a volunteer with the Afghan Girls Financial Assistance Fund." Uh, he says we've brought uh, they've brought dozens of young women and some males to the U.S. to study. And he just wants to point out, Americans are just not aware of the horrific treatment uh, of the women in Afghanistan, points to a PBS Frontline documentary you should watch on that. Um, Lynn, let me bring you back in. Um, you know, On the broader humanitarian situation on the ground, you've obviously covered this over the last uh, year, but also in the years when you were living there. What's your sense of the additional steps that the international community could, could sort of take Uh, to make more of a difference?
0: It's very difficult to, um, that's a really difficult question to answer, I think. There's been an awful lot of revisionism in the last year um, with people wanting to believe that the Taliban takeover has made things terrible, whereas they were pretty terrible under the Republic as well. Afghanistan was one of the poorest countries in the world. Its government was one of the most corrupt even before um, the the collapse of the republic, the UN agencies were predicting 11 million people would be facing hunger and children would die last winter. Um, the Taliban have made that worse, of course, because um, they don't know how to run an economy and they don't seem to be trying. And even though there are... Um, uh, attempts to say that they're much more efficient and much less corrupt, for instance, at collecting taxes at the borders, that money isn't going into um, feeding people, creating jobs, developing an economy where people have um, the hope that things will get better tomorrow. So what, what could be done is, I would say, probably a first step would be Um, get moving on the negotiations for the release of 100%, not just 50%, but 100% of the $9 billion of um, Afghanistan's foreign reserves, there has to be a way of making sure that that money can reach Afghan people, it belongs to Afghan people, and it's being um, held really as a as like the Afghan people are being punished for the Taliban being in power. I think that could be step one. Um, you have to get money flowing so that um, business people Afghans are natural business people. Let's let's give them the wherewithal to to um, pay um, employees, buy in supplies, and and really get the economy moving. What I found when I went there was, um, you know like everything had stopped there was no commercial activity at all Uh, bread prices had tripled people queuing up at the very rare um, functioning uh, construction site for as day labourers no cars on the streets because petrol is unaffordable and the Taliban have stolen cars owned by Um, private citizens. It's it's a really dire situation. And it's another reason um, to go back to the last question that I think that it's unsustainable. And one of the diplomats who's long term there suggested to me There could be food, food riots. Um, There could be, um, uh, you know, mass demonstrations against the humiliation of, of the poverty that people have been plunged into. I think money is, is the answer, but not money piecemeal or conditionally give Afghan people their money back.
1: Always comes back to that, doesn't it? Let me bring in some more viewer questions. Michael, this one's for you. I'm going to sort of weave us towards America's role in this all. Um, Awais Habib. Uh, who's an undergraduate from the uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto Institute of Science and Technology in Karachi. Uh, He's an IR student. Uh, His question to you, Michael, is that he's asking if Afghanistan is still important to US interests. Uh, Is it part of a greater Middle East uh, strategy? Is it vital to US Eurasian strategy? What do you think policymakers in Washington are thinking about America's way forward uh, in Afghanistan? Michael, that's his question to you.
2: Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. You know, some years ago when uh, Joe Biden was vice president to Barack Obama, uh, he met with Hamid Karzai, the president of, Af- of Afghanistan at the time, and he said that um, Pakistan is 50 times more important to the U.S. than Afghanistan is. That may not have been meant as a positive to Pakistan, but I think it was channeling views in Washington that um and haven't necessarily evolved that much in the sense that now that U.S. forces have left Afghanistan, I do think, and I fear this is a bad thing, that the administration will leave Afghanistan uh, in the rearview mirror and distance itself from Afghanistan more and more. It simply has moved on, and I think that the administration, including Biden himself, have been very uh, emphatic about this and very explicit that uh, the focus for U.S. foreign policy now is the competition with China it is of course now more recently the war in Ukraine uh, as well as broader uh, issues like climate change and so on and that leaves Afghanistan on the outside looking in unfortunately. Um, I think that U.S. interests in Afghanistan moving forward will revolve around uh, trying to do what they can to ease the humanitarian crisis though there's only some I mean and it has been one of the top bilateral it has been the top bilateral donor to uh, Afghanistan since the Taliban took over but its ability to deal with the broader economic crisis is very limited because of the sanctions regime. Beyond that, I think that the administration, and I think there's a sort of multi-partisan support for this idea. The major U.S. interest in Afghanistan moving forward it doesn't relate to strategy or geopolitics. It relates to counterterrorism. Um, ever since U.S. forces entered Afghanistan in October 2001, you know counterterrorism has really been the the priority that has guided U.S. actions. And so, you know, we saw with the decision to uh, uh, to go after Zawahiri that uh, you know it continues to be the case now. And It'll be difficult for the U.S. to build up this so-called over-the-horizon capacity to target terrorists from outside Afghanistan. But it clearly has done it once. It'll continue to to focus on that to the extent that it can. But uh, I don't think that Afghanistan is going to occupy much space um, in the the thinking of of U.S. policymakers uh, moving forward. And final point, you know, we talk about the primacy of U.S.-China competition. I don't think that Washington sees Afghanistan as a key battlefield for U.S.-China competition. I don't think there's a tremendous fear of China moving in and causing uh, to to interrupt to cause problems for U.S. strategic interests, just because, first of all, China is not very present there. And China's broader goals are not dissimilar to those of the United States in Afghanistan. Engage with the Taliban to the extent possible. Try to do whatever is possible to reduce terrorism. Uh, and so on. So unfortunately, this is, this is a tragic thing, but I do fear that um, the US is,
1: is really not going to consider Afghanistan a major strategic priority moving forward. Mm. Two quick follow-on questions, Michael. Nirmal Shankar asks, is there any possibility of Afghanistan being accepted as a legitimate state uh, by the United States? Uh, this is obviously Afghanistan under the Taliban. Um, uh, that's, that's one question. And as you hold on to that, Javid Hakimi, asks, um, how will America deal with the Taliban in coming years, related, I guess. Um, what do you think, Michael? Would they ever recognize the Taliban? No, and that could be a quick answer. Um,
2: you know, for the reasons that we've discussed, uh, concerns about the Taliban's human rights record, its uh, position toward women, and of course, the uh, the terrorism issue. And I think, quite frankly, even if, the Tal- even if we were to suspend our disbelief and the Taliban were to take actions on those levels to satisfy US concerns, I think there'd be a lot of political pressure, domestic political pressure in the US US to to, to ensure that the US does not recognize the Taliban just because of what the Taliban is. The fact that the US fought the Taliban unsuccessfully for 20 years, and I think it would be viewed as a political embarrassment uh, for the US to recognize the very group that it had fought for so long and failed to defeat or even degrade before leaving in those terribly chaotic uh,
1: circumstances uh, a year ago. Uh, Lynn, I have a very interesting question from uh, Gobind Tanaka. Um, and this is, you know, great for you in part because you lived there for so many years, uh, I think between '09 and 17. And the question is, in retrospect, would Afghanistan's current situation be any different if the coalition had never invaded Iraq and instead concentrated all of its resources in Afghanistan? Obviously, this is a counterfactual, but it's it's worth thinking about.
0: Well, it's woulda, coulda, shoulda, isn't it? And I, I, I really don't know the answer to that because I think that 20 years of, um, of uh, presence of foreign troops in Afghanistan achieved very, very little. Um, uh, and as we saw on August the 15th and in the, the weeks and months that followed, nothing was sustainable. That c- civil society evaporate, evaporated a billion dollars bent on developing a free and independent media it no longer exists Uh, women's education it doesn't exist Um, so um, I really don't know had they concentrated more effort and more money would the result have been the same I think probably Um, there was incompetent corrupt government Um, Ashraf Ghani um, has you know his mates have started up a tv station and he went on it last night and declared himself still to be the the president and the collapse of the republic was everybody else's fault but his own. Um, today on the BBC, we've got the vice president, um, Amrullah Saleh, saying he's still the vice president and um, he will, you know, if the Taliban hold um, a referendum, he'll go along with the result. There is fantasy. There is no ideas. What Afghan, what Afghanistan needs is an indigenous grassroots up um, ideas factory on how Afghan people can run their own country and run themselves. And so far, I haven't seen that. I don't think a prolonged um, or concentrated effort in Afghanistan after 2001, no Iraq, would have made any difference at all. It failed.
1: It failed. Michael, um, what surprised you uh, about the last year? Um, Because, you know, a lot of this conversation so far leads me to sort of think that all of this seemed like well, this is pretty much as expected
2: hey, you're right and unfortunately that's true for all the wrong reasons you know we expected uh, we expected terrorism we expected the economic crisis I think what surprises me and this maybe goes back to something I mentioned earlier is how the Taliban have managed to hold things together for the last year right I mean it's had so many struggles, so many problems uh, adjusting to being a, a government Um it struggles to gain legitimacy at home. It uh, hasn't really done a very good job of that. Uh, it, the immense policy challenges it's faced, its inability to address them, Of course, the ISIS threats, the internal divisions, which have only gotten worse. But despite all that, uh, you know they they've held it together. and you know, as I said before, you know they hold uh, they control nearly the entire country, um, which is what, is what was exactly the case when they took over a year ago. Uh, you know there really is no viable opposition. There's very little armed resistance. I mean, you do have the National Resistance Front based in Panchir, but it has a, a modest presence in my view. And when it has tried to launch some, some offensive, they've been brutally suppressed. Um, you know, ISIS certainly does not threaten the Taliban's political survival, uh, even though it's, it's, it's hitting out against the Taliban. And I think most importantly um, is that, you know, it's true that the, the war, which came to an end, uh, 40 years of war for Afghans finally came to an end when the Taliban took over in Kabul and when US forces left, that war has not begun again. That's not to say there hasn't been violence or struggle or suffering, there has on such huge levels. But the fact that the Taliban continues to have held out, to stay in control, uh, the fact that uh, war has not begun, that's what surprised me. But again, this is definitely something to watch over the next year, because I think that there could be a delayed reaction, so to speak, in terms of the impact of all those sources of stress and problems for the Taliban the impact of all of that on their, on their ability to continue to, uh, to hold on.
1: Lynn, I have to put the same question to you, uh, given how many years you live there for. Um, what surprised you just over the course of the last year?
0: I've been really quite taken aback by how willing the international community has been to accept the excesses of the Taliban. Um, the disappearance of of more than half the population. More than half the population are women because there has been 40 years of war fought by men and more than half the population has been brutally uh, suppressed and their rights um, have evaporated. And I I have been really shocked that that has been allowed to um, prevail as well as the hunger Um, The reports of people selling their kidneys and selling their children have been verified over and over again. I'm shocked that the international community allows that to prevail, Um, that the neighbours that supported the Taliban's victory, Pakistan, Iran, China, Russia, to a lesser extent, Turkey, that they allow that to prevail. I, I, I just I have no words for that.
1: Mm. You know, we have a vibrant debate going on uh, on the Q&A on Zoom. Uh, Ahmed Maksud asks, uh, from a policy point of view, is Afghanistan an achievement or a failure for the U.S.? And in a sense, it's responded to by Monte McCurkey, who says lives of soldiers and aid, uh, civilians lost for what, for what? Um, Michael, let me ask you about President Biden's uh, legacy in terms of Uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan? Of course, one year ago, there was a lot of criticism for, you know, what was widely seen as a botched withdrawal, uh, at least in terms of how it was handled, how it was signaled and communicated. Um, One year on, um, what's your sense of how Biden would be judged for withdrawing from Afghanistan?
2: I think that many critics, their views will be shaped by what happened during the last two weeks of the US presence in Afghanistan, which was incredibly chaotic and tragic and deadly for sure. You know it was back in April, 2021, when President Biden announced the decision to leave. And certainly it was a decision that many disagreed with, but many were, were okay with it. And I, I myself included, I had written for FP at the time that it was time for the US to go in the sense that it had it was, it was unclear why being there uh, on the ground, with forces on the ground, was actually achieving s- successful outcomes. It was not preventing the Taliban from getting stronger. It was not preventing terrorist attacks. It was not preventing Islamic State Khorasan from doing its thing. And in that sense, there was certainly a view for many that it was time to go. So if the, if the final days of the, of the withdrawal had been less chaotic and responsible and safe and all, I don't know if we would be having these types of conversations, but I will say, that what happened over those last two weeks of the U.S. presence were really indicative of U.S. failure on the whole in Afghanistan, more broadly speaking. The inability to have a plan and strategy at play to anticipate what was to come. Now, my sense is that the administration did not plan for the possibility of the Taliban taking over before the U.S. withdrawal had been completed. And I think that's one reason why there was so much chaos. One could also argue the U.S. really struggled to have a plan or a strategy to govern its mission in Afghanistan, many years after the initial goals were achieved during the, the first few months of the presence there uh, in Afghanistan. So in that sense, that's a mark against Biden. But honestly, I think that many Americans, unfortunately, have, have moved on, aren't really thinking about Afghanistan much anymore. And there's just a lot of other things going on in the world as well. Certainly, people will think about it as we look at the one-year anniversary. But I wouldn't overplay the idea of the damage or the political damage that that Biden could suffer or credibility impacts or anything like that. I do think that on many levels, people have simply have simply moved on, um, which is again, unfortunate, but I think that's the reality of how many in the US and, and beyond elsewhere in the West in particular, think about um, Afghanistan these days, it's unfortunately wanting to move on.
1: Well, people have moved on, but uh, as someone who edits foreign policy, I can assure you foreign policy will continue to cover Afghanistan, I think. Uh, especially given what it's gone through, very important to do that. We're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, Lynn O'Donnell, Michael Kugelman, thank you so much for joining us today on this FP Live, marking a year since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. And I urge uh, everyone watching today to please uh, read uh, their pieces in foreign policy. Uh, They've done some terrific reporting and analysis uh, over the last year and before that. Thank you to you both.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you. You've been listening to the latest discussion from FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy's playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbrow-Tallam, Rosie Julin, and Maria Jimena-Aragon. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
0: It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts, and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.